Our theme for Easter was gospel truth. And, and by the way, yes, we mixed up the layout of the room. I asked the team, can we mix it up every week? Because it's different again this week. And then it's going to be on the beach the next week. So we're just going to keep you guessing, right? I want to keep you on the edge of your seat. But, but no, we, we, we talked about gospel truth. It was all about hey, dealing with reality, dealing with what is true, what's real. And that wasn't much of a mix-up of themes of what we've been experiencing as we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, because we've been getting into some real hard truth as we've moved through uh, the, the 23rd chapter, 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And it'll be the same this morning. You see, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion, and he has arrived into a temple institution and a religious institution that should have accepted him, but is instead obscuring both God and the faith that they profess. So he's going to say essentially that all of it is going to be destroyed in the passage that we're reading this morning. And he's also going to have some allusions to his second coming at the consummation of the age. All right, a lot is here. Matthew chapter 24, the verses are going to be on the screens. Let's read it together starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple. After his confrontation with the religious leaders, after he condemned them with those seven woes, and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, sort of the grandeur of of the location. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. The temple is going to be destroyed. Every one of these stones will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. 
Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I would say that's enough for this morning. Would you agree? All right, I'm warning you, you got to put on your thinking cap this morning. All right, I know you may have come in here, you've got your donut and coffee cap, you've got your nice warm breeze cap on like this is vacation. This isn't a vacation, all right? We've got to put our thinking cap on, we've got to really consider some details here because this is complicated stuff. You know, the passage shotguns all these different ways, Right? But when it starts out, it starts out very, very focused on the impending destruction of the temple. It says Jesus was leaving the temple grounds when he pointed to the structure and he said, basically, you know, it's going to be taken down to the point that it's unrecognizable. The whole temple that's been built. I mean, this is the house of God's living presence among God's people. And Jesus is saying it's going to be completely leveled to the ground. So the disciples, they're taking this seriously. They take a note of what Jesus has just said, and they approach him privately at the Mount of Olives to ask in verse 3, well, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And even more than that, when are you going to come back? What, when is the consummation of the age going to take place? And that kicks off a set of teachings, which I've just read, which are going to continue on for the next couple of weeks, that answer some of these questions and present a bunch of new questions for us. In fact, I would say no two scholars that I read agree on the specifics of these signs and statements uh, and whether they apply to the impending destruction of the temple or the impending return of Christ and the consummation of the age. He's not clear about which ones are which as he's speaking. Now, the good thing is I don't think Jesus is going to test us on our aptitude and our sense of certainty around defining all those items when he returns. I don't think he's coming back and saying, well, what did you think of Matthew chapter 24? What did I mean when I said this? And if you get it wrong, he says, well, you're going to stay behind. I'm going to take those who got it right. You know, you guys are going to be here for a little time out to figure this out. It'll be instructed in the proper... No, I don't think that's going to be the case. And in fact, when you get to the end of this passage and you really reflect on it, you realize even if you have a difference of opinion about some of the specifics of how these events play out, the application is the same. The application for us, what we actually are going to do, how this is going to affect the way we live, is universal for all of us. So you can take that path of understanding, and I'll take this path of understanding, and I'll see you at the summit. I'll see you at the other side with Jesus as he gives us direction for the future. But let's turn to Jesus' words, because, you know, I'm not beholden to any particular tradition. Some of you are, and so some of you are looking for me to say this or that about this passage, and guess what? When I don't, you might tell me what I should have said out on the patio after service, or I might get it in a very long email when you have time to write it on Monday. I get that, but I'm just, I want to humbly 
look at the words of Jesus, let them speak and try to understand them in context. So let's turn to the words of Jesus. And it's clear enough, right? Right from the outset, he says the temple would be destroyed in AD 70 and he would return in the spring of 2022. Right? Wouldn't we wish for that? Then the band can just come up and we can get ready. It's all going to end soon. Like, we're good, right? No. He's, he's not like that. It's not clear. The disciples come with this question of when. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And when are you going to come back and the consummation of the age is going to occur? And he doesn't answer with when. He answers with what is going to happen next. In verse 4, he says, look alive, guys. Don't let anyone mislead you, for many are going to show up claiming to re represent me. So he hasn't gotten into the timeline. He just said, this is what's going to happen next. Stay alert. Be on your guard. Because a lot of people are going to come in my name or claim that they are the Messiah. And they're going to deceive people. Well, what was the setting of this deception? Why are people being led astray? Why, why are they being you know, picked off like low-hanging fruit? Well, Jesus says there's some stuff that's going to be going on in the world that's difficult. He gives four things here. He says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famine and earthquakes that are, that are the setting of the deception that's going on in the world. Essentially, all that bad stuff that's happening. There are these opportunists who are seizing that climate of fear in the culture and they're leading people astray according to their own agenda. Now, Jesus suggests that our response to these events should be the opposite of what a lot of second coming rumorists would say. He actually says, when all this stuff's going on, here's what I want you to do. Nothing. I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be disturbed. I don't even want you to give a lot of attention to it because when all that stuff is happening, the wars and the rumors of war and famines and earthquakes, it's just the beginnings of the birth pains. You know, this isn't even actual labor. This isn't the real thing. It's not coming yet. It's like sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this, you feel this throbbing pain. Like I felt this throbbing pain at times in my chest and it's, it won't go away. I kind of think to myself, wait a minute, is this a big one? Is this a big one? And then... Yeah, I got five kids, all right? It's stressful, all right, sometimes. And, and then I realize, it's just lasagna. You know, like, has that ever happened to you? Like, you feel that throbbing, but you're like, oh my gosh, I've never felt a pain like this before in my chest. And then you think about it, and you go, oh, I just had Italian for lunch. That's all it is, it's indigestion. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, this isn't the big one. This isn't the ultimate. This is just the normal course of life. In this world, these sorts of things are going to happen, but... Hold up, right? Is Jesus speaking of the lead-up to the second coming when he talks about these earthquakes and famines and the wars and rumors of war? Or is he speaking here of the lead-up to the destruction of the temple? Because both questions were asked, but he didn't link it to one or the other. So which one is it? Well, we know that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and we can actually look at all these different events that Jesus cites as having occurred prior to the destruction of the temple. Right? You've got... Wars going on, uh, you know, and rumors of wars. It was in AD 40 when the emperor Caligula uh, of Rome said, hey, I want you guys to set up an altar in the temple courts and I want you to sacrifice to me because I'm a deity as well. And the Jews were in an uproar. It really rallied them to start amassing some arms, to start planning for their revolution. Now, Caligula died in 41, so it never was established, but there was that rumor of the war and that eventually boiled over in AD 66 when the Jews did actually commit an uprising 
against Rome at the same time that Rome was falling into a civil war. So there were rumors of war and wars that were continuously going on in that period between Jesus' ascension and the destruction of the temple. And there were famines that are actually recorded in the scriptures. There was a widespread famine recorded in Acts chapter 11. And a serious earthquake was recorded in Jerusalem in AD 67. And during that entire period, there were multiple revolutionaries claiming to be the deliverer of God's people. One's recorded in the book of Acts chapter 21, just known as the Egyptian who led a revolt. And then Josephus, the Jewish historian, cites that there were at least four or five others in the same time period saying, man, we're going to bring victory to the Jewish people. There were those events then prior to the destruction of the temple. And guess what? Earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of war. There are those events since then. So was Jesus speaking to the lead up before the destruction of the temple or the lead up before the consummation of the age? But wait, didn't he just tell us we're not even supposed to pay that much attention to it? He just say, you don't even need to worry about this. You don't even need to speculate because it's normal. This kind of stuff is going to keep happening in the course of the world. It's the birth pains. But if those events didn't get folks to take their eyes off the prize, which is really the threat that Jesus says they'll bring, Jesus says things are going to get even worse. In verse 9, he starts to describe how the disciples are going to be led away and executed and they're going to be hated by all the nations, and many are going to turn away from the faith, and more false prophets are going to lead people astray and speak on behalf of God, and the love of most in those times is going to grow cold. Interestingly, the call here again to the disciples is to keep their cool. That's essentially what Jesus says. He says, I want you guys to stand firm when things go from bad to worse. As the resistance against you increases... So your need for a sure footing increases so that you can endure the times and so be saved, he says in verse 13. And along with many others who are going to be saved as the kingdom is proclaimed among all nations before the end. That's what he says in verse 14. But now again, here we are with the same question. Let's ask ourselves again, is this prep now for the second coming, the consummation of the age or the destruction of the temple? Certainly in that 40-year period between his ascension and the destruction of the temple, all these things happened to the people of God, and they have occurred since. The one exception maybe being the statement that the kingdom will be preached in all the world before the end. And yet Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, long before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed, that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing through the whole world. So he already saw it as going to the furthest reaches of the world. The whole world. How could Paul mean the whole world when we haven't even reached the whole world today? So what is being spoken here? Is it figurative speech? Is it literal speech? It's like when someone says, I tried everything and I just can't get this to work. Oh, you mean that literally? You've literally tried everything and you can't get it to work. I don't think you probably tried everything if you still can't get it to work. You probably tried the things you knew to do. It's like when people say, I've looked everywhere and I can't find it. Well, really? Have you looked everywhere? Because I think if you looked everywhere, you would have found it by now. But, you know, you just looked in all the places you need to look. People love it when you respond this way, when they're in their time, they lost something. <laughs> Try to point out, you know, is this literal or figurative? But we've got to ask that question. Is Paul speaking figuratively? Is Jesus speaking literally? What is the whole world? It's rather imprecise. But we do get a little bit more focused as we continue, even as I'm giving you a bit of false hope. 
In verse 15, Jesus cites the first specific sign that actually demands a clear response other than keep calm and carry on. Do you understand? That's all Jesus has said up to verse 14 as far as application. He just said, don't be alarmed, don't be disturbed, and stand firm. Keep calm and carry on, except at verse 15. He says, when the abomination that causes desolation is set up in the holy place, all are to flee Judea. Okay, so just take that you know, to heart. If you're in Judea, when the abomination of desolation is set up, you know to flee now, all right? You've been warned. I know we got questions around this, and we got questions around what is the abomination of desolation? That, that, that's like the 20th question of this morning, right? Well, as Jesus says, this is a reference to an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about this time that would come to the Jewish people where a prince, a foreign prince, would come in. He'd eliminate the, the sacrificial system, and he'd set up something horrible. He'd commit some sort of great sin that would, that would horrify the Jewish nation. Now, that was fulfilled in 167 B.C. when the Greek king Antiochus IV marched into Jerusalem, killed tens of thousands of Jews, abolished the sacrificial system, set up an altar to the god Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, which is an unclean animal in the Jewish view. I mean, this was horrifying. It's like forcing a vegan to eat bacon. Not bacon, bacon. And then burning a flag, an American flag for someone who's patriotic, and cursing someone's god all wrapped into one experience. That's the feeling that they had when this was occurring. And Jesus says something like that event is going to occur again. And it's going to be a warning for the inhabitants of Judea that when they see it, they've got to flee the suffering that is to follow. So the million-dollar question, is this something that's still to come or is this something that has already occurred? This abomination of desolation the second time. I think until 1948, when Israel was reestablished as a nation for the first time, up until that point, most people assumed the second abomination of desolation had already occurred. I mean, how could you say it didn't occur when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, lit God's house on fire to the point that it was completely destroyed? I mean, can you not say that that's desolation? History tells us that Titus, who was the future Roman emperor, who was leading these forces, walked into the Holy of Holies. He walked into the most holy place, reserved for the chief priest only, and set up a shrine to himself and offered sacrifices unto himself. And he was deified later in the Roman Empire. How can you not say that that was the abomination of desolation, saying it already occurred? But since 1948... And the reestablishment of Israel as a nation, suddenly there's a new narrative that has emerged in the last several decades especially, wherein some people believe, hey, wait a minute. Israel could rebuild another temple. We could have a third temple. And this abomination of desolation occurs after that point. The speculation and debate, my friends, is endless. And Jesus doesn't give us much more to go on. Instead, he returns to a familiar warning in verses 22 to 28 amidst a note of consolation. After establishing the severe tribulations that are going to occur on the other side of this abomination, he says that the period of time that people would undergo would be so severe no one would be left, but God is going to exercise grace on the Jewish people because of the believers who are inhabitants among them. And yet even at that time, 
in that time of suffering, more are going to come claiming to see or know the Messiah. Oh, he's out here in the wilderness. Oh, he's in here in the inner room in my basement. Do you guys see a pattern emerging in Matthew chapter 24 at this point? I mean, for some of you, you're going, I don't see anything in Matthew chapter 24. You're going, I don't have a clue what's being talked about. But for, maybe you don't have the answers for when things are going to occur. But do you see a pattern to what Jesus has been warning us about? Because he starts off and he says, bad things are going to happen, guys. And he goes, and people are going to be speculating about the Messiah. Don't listen to him. And then he says, more bad things are going to happen. And then he says, people are going to speculate even more about the Messiah. And then even more bad things are going to happen, and even more people are going to speculate about the Messiah. He's warned us three times. It's one of the clearest themes in this passage. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, stop. Stop with it. Don't listen to it. Don't follow it. Don't be alarmed. Don't carry the rumors forward. You don't got to go looking for me over here out in the wilderness. You don't got to go in someone's basement. I'm not down there. You don't got to see somebody's parlor tricks who claims to represent me. You will know when it's me. I'm going to come like a lightning flash across the sky from east to west. It's going to be unmistakable when I'm back. Amen, right? And moving on from that declaration, he returns to describe the events that come after the time of the tribulation. In verse 29, Jesus is immediately following that time of difficulty. Cosmic signs are going to occur. The sun and moon are going to go dark. and you know, The stars are going to fall. The heavenly bodies are going to shake. The Son of Man is going to come on the clouds of glory and angels and a trumpet blast is going to sound and he's going to gather all peoples to himself. And surely now, at least we know, this must be him speaking to his return and the consummation of the age except what he says in verse 34. He says, and surely all this will happen before this generation passes away right in front of me. What does he mean then? Does he mean it already happened before that generation passed away? Is it possible then all of this statements about heavenly bodies and, and stars falling is possibly Old Testament prophetic language to describe the earth-shattering seismic event among God's people when the temple's destroyed and all these Jews that have been persecuting Christians and denying the gospel finally realize that they rejected the Messiah, that they've received judgment, and now are repenting and turning to Jesus. Or maybe it's just a metaphor. Maybe verse 34, Jesus is saying this generation of disciples, the generation of disciples will not pass away before all these things come to fulfillment. <sighs> We're left with so many questions. That some here would love to answer and debate. Uh, some of you who weren't taking notes, you were replying to me already. I understand that. Others of you, quite frankly, you just want a break now after all this, right? What do we take? What do we walk away with? What's the impression the Lord wants to leave us with on the other side of Matthew 24, having said everything that we've talked about this morning? I want to start here with this statement. We've got to focus on application and not on speculation. We've got to focus on application, what this means for our life rather than on speculation. I think this is a really interesting passage to study, and the more I study it, the more I want to study it. I think the book of Daniel, with all of its prophecies 
you know, that's pretty much alluded to three times in this passage. I think it's an interesting book to study, worthy of our study. The book of Revelation, interesting book to study. We're going to be studying it together in the months to come. Okay, that's something that's coming in the future. Interesting book, fruitful book for us to study. But in all our human speculation about these books, we often miss what's right in front of our nose. The application, the things God actually calls us to do and to be. So whether he's speaking to Jewish Christians leading up to the time of the temple destruction, or he's speaking about you know, the consummation of the age, his second coming, or the rapture, if you want to differentiate it from his second coming, or maybe speaking to all of it at once, he says some clear things that we can all apply, no matter how we view the events. And for one, I believe he says this very clearly, don't be troubled by the world's troubles. Don't be troubled by the world's troubles. A lot of times in this passage, he speaks to the trouble, the tribulations, the difficulty that's going to surround us in the world. There's a lot of it. Wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and the love growing cold and people being persecuted false prophet. Okay, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. He goes, there's all that trouble, but all that trouble out there around you, be careful to not let it trouble you in here. Don't take all that outward trouble and make it an inward trouble. Don't internalize it. That's when you're open to deception. That's when you're going to be looking for someone other than Jesus to provide you answers. You're looking for those false promises. I've said this many times. When I'm full, when I've eaten, I'm not looking for a meal anymore. When I am, it's not a good choice, all right? But in general, when I've eaten a meal, I'm not hungry. I'm not looking for something anymore. When we are spiritually satisfied and secure and confident in Jesus, we're not looking for other answers. We're not listening to other voices. So he says, don't be alarmed. Don't take that trouble internally because you have me as your pastor. The Son of God himself, I've given you my Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Do not be troubled by the world's troubles. And stand firm. Stand firm when life is unsteady. Have you ever been on a boat that's really rocky? What do you do when a boat starts rocking? You brace yourself, right? I mean, you counterbalance. You get your footing. You stand firm. Jesus is saying there are going to be things that happen in life where this boat is going to be really rocky. It's going to go from bad to worse at certain times. You've got to establish your footing you don't want to be falling all over the place. But there are going to be people falling all over the place in society. There are going to be people running to and fro this way and that way. You're going to ground yourself. You're going to ground yourself in the faith. What this means is, like during the time of COVID, when it all begins and there's all the stuff going on, that means we're not chasing every rumor and conspiracy. We're not sharing everything that comes into our ear. It's not coming back out our mouth. You know, we're not speculating, speculating, speculating end- endlessly. We're not... You know, word vomiting on social media. I don't want anything to do with that soup, all right? That's an ugly picture, right? No, we're standing firm in the faith. We're getting a sure footing in Christ, in prayer, in worship, in the word. When everything began, the first week that everything was shut down, the instinctual response in the branches community, okay, let's make sure we're praying and worshiping. All week long. Let's make sure we're in the Word all week long in a daily devotional. 
some of you say, well, I don't want to read all those emails. You know, I don't like tuning into a live stream. Well, that's fine. That's fine. You don't connect to those mediums. It doesn't change what you should still be doing in a time like that. If you want to stand firm in the faith, your inclination, my inclination has to be, okay, tough times here. I'm going to ground myself in Christ. I'm going to ground myself in prayer, in the word, and in worship. And we'll be given the strength we require until Christ comes. And that's another thing that's established here in Matthew chapter 24. Christ is coming with certainty. He's coming. Do you know when all the speculation around when he's coming is going to be cleared up? When he comes. When he's here. That's when all the speculation and everyone's ideas are out on the table and then finally like, okay, debate solved. He's here. He says, don't run after the rumor over here. Don't go look at this over here. When I'm here, you'll know I'm here. From east to west, it'll be clear when I arrive. Bam, like lightning, like a thief in the knife. You see the light before you hear the sound, right? That's how quickly it's going to occur. And just as this prophecy of the temple being destroyed was fulfilled, so this promise to return will be fulfilled just the same. And you don't need to know when. You don't need to know when. The hinge point between this passage and the next, when Jesus is more clearly speaking about his return and the consummation of the age, we're going to talk about that for several weeks. The hinge verse that I'm going to read at the beginning of next week that I'm going to read to you right now is verse 36. About that day or hour, no one knows. Can we just agree? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father knows. And some of you, apparently. And some pastors I've listened to, apparently. I mean, we can't just seem to get over the fact that we need to know, and God doesn't need us to know. He doesn't want us to know. It's hard for us to accept. It's like when my kids ask me why, and I say, because I told you, son, that no! We just have that feeling, right? That ten, he left us with tension. He left us with ambiguity. He didn't just link us to that and give us the timeline with the date. Why did he do that? Because he didn't need you to know. He didn't want you to know. Every guess, my friends, has been wrong for literally thousands of years. We've guessed for thousands of years, and we've been wrong every single time. When are we going to wise up and just stop guessing? But some of you, I, I do think you're going to write me an email. You're going to take me out on the patio. You're going to say, well, actually, let's open up to the book of Daniel. I've got some dates here. And I can show you this website right here where someone who's a child of the light, a child of the day, enlightened, can tell you exactly how it's going to play out so that you're prepared. Friends, that's not what it means to be a child of the light and a child of the day, to be enlightened. Someone who's a child of the light and a child of the day lives Every day prepared, whether it's tomorrow or it's a hundred years from now or it's another thousand years from now, someone who is awake to the reality of Christ's coming is living in line with it all the time. They're always prepared. If they're wrong about the unfolding of the events, it doesn't matter because when he returns, Jesus is going to find that person busy with the master's business, doing what he asked them to do. 
this passage for me, it, it just awakens us to reality, like ultimate reality. That's what I think the point of this passage is. If I could just illustrate that. Imagine that I'm leaving for work in the morning and my wife and I are getting into an argument as I'm leaving the door. This is just hypothetical. This doesn't happen. Getting into an argument about who's doing more in the household and, you know, who made breakfast and who cleaned up and, you know, who's got the harder day ahead of them. This, again, it's never happened. But let's say I leave. Uh, I'm being sarcastic. I'm clear about that. Uh, and I'm, you know, stubborn. And I just say, well, fine, I'm just going to move on with my day. I'm going to get in my car and I'm a little bit teed off. Uh, and, and I drive away. And then as I'm driving away, I get into a rollover accident and almost die. And I lose all this blood and and I'm brought back from the brink in the hospital, and there I am in the hospital bed later that morning, and my wife comes to meet me in the hospital room, and she says, now about that argument we were having, you're wrong about all that stuff. I've had a much harder day, and all this stuff was going on. And you think she's going to say anything about all that to me? No, that's all going to fade into the background. We're not even going to remember what we were talking about because we're faced with something much more ultimate that's much more far-reaching, the frailty of life in, in that specific example, right? And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's facing us with the ultimate. He says there's going to be so much noise. There's going to be so much stuff happening in the world, and everybody's going to be sucked into it this way and that way, and there's going to be all this speculation. It's, it's the noise. If you want to be about what's ultimate, you're going to cut right through it. You're not going to be disturbed. You're going to stand firm in the gospel. You're going to be about the kingdom work. And you're going to be busy with what I called you to do when I return. And I could come at any time. And when I do, you're going to know it. That's what's happening. So get your affairs in order. That's what Jesus is going to keep saying as we turn into the next few chapters. So I want us to have that reality check this morning. I mean, are we living with that awareness? Are our priorities in line with that awareness? Have we allowed a lot of other subplots to take the main plot of our lives? I mean, if you knew Jesus was returning today, if you did know the day and the hour, how would you adjust your schedule? How would you adjust some of the value decisions that you're making with your life? And yet Jesus says, you've got to live like I'm always returning. The next time you close your eyes, you may not open them until the resurrection. Nothing's promised. So in that posture of humility and, and seeking the Lord and depending on Him, let's, let's enter into a time of prayer and examination, empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? And Lord Jesus, we do come before You humbled. Some of us, we don't even have the stomach to get into some of the details and the history and the, and the facts of the past. And it, we just get confused. And others of us, we just dive into it and we want to understand and grasp it all. But Lord, no matter who we are this morning, we are humbled. We are dependent. Because you built this life in such a way, you taught in such a way that there would be that ambiguity, that unknown, Lord. You do that constantly in your scriptures. You set up these situations that require faith, trust in you. So, Lord, in that place of humility, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know what's going to happen next in this world. We don't know if there's going to be a period of peace. We don't know if there's going to be a period of intensity and trouble, Lord. 
what we do know is we want to stand firm in you. We want to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people grounded in your word. We want to be a people of worship so that when the trouble comes around us, as it is around us, that we don't internalize it, that we don't take it inside, that we're not troubled because we're standing in the strength that you provide, the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would identify for us where our priorities are mismatched. Lord, if we're living with that understanding that at any time we could be faced with what is ultimate, there's nothing more ultimate than your kingdom, than eternity, than your return. Lord, are we living with that in view? If that's in view, if if you were returning today, this week, what would we change? What would we reprioritize? Where would our time go? Where would our money go? Lord, I know that's how you want us to live today. Prepared. So Lord, lead us in that. Give us one more step in that direction that we wouldn't get caught up in the things that are temporary. But we'd be attached to the things that are eternal. Lord, if you return before this service is done or if you return 100 years from now, I just pray, Lord, that we'd be living awake to the reality that you're coming. All that matters is your eternal kingdom. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord in your own heart in this time and space we have this morning. Lord, what do I need to reevaluate? What do I need to reprioritize in view of your coming? Ask the Lord, what do I need to give less attention to? What do I need to give more attention to in view of your coming?